Well, about 10 or 12 years ago, we took our kids to the Houston Children's Museum. And uh, if you've ever been there, you may remember that uh, kind of in the open foyer or lobby area, they have a climbing structure for little kids. Here's a picture of it. Not a great picture, but you can see uh, it's got a lot of different circular pads that kids can climb up to kind of the top of the room. It's surrounded by netting, so I guess they don't drop off the sides as they're trying to climb up. So we took our kids there, and our uh, oldest at the time was maybe seven or eight. So uh, our middle one was, I don't know, about five. And then uh, the youngest one was three. And they began to climb uh, up this structure. And our middle one, our daughter, Abby, uh, I secured her permission to tell you this this morning. Uh, she got about halfway up and decided that she could go no further because she was terrified of the height and of climbing. And so uh, she was about halfway up and she just began to wail and to weep and to cry. I can't do it. I can't do it. And, and so uh, my wife and I, we were at the bottom and we began to try to instruct her how to get her all the way up. You, you can do this, Abby. Like you just need to take a step to the left and go up. Then you'll take another step to the right and go up. And so she would go a step or two up and then freeze again and sit down and just weep and cry while other children kind of scampered past her and around her. Uh, the situation after a couple of minutes got uncomfortable and awkward as the other children's parents began to look at us, shouting instructions. And I could tell some of them were like, why don't you climb up there and help her? What kind of parent are you? But, but I was looking at this thing and I was like, it's not made for me, right? For all I know, I'm gonna climb halfway up and the whole thing's gonna come down on top of all the kids and we'll be stuck in this netting forever. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do and, and I'm still shouting instructions to her and she won't go up, but she also won't come down and we're just locked in. I mean, I'm thinking we're just gonna have to live here in the open foyer of this museum. And it was right at that moment that our oldest daughter, the eight-year-old said, I'll help her. And so she ran and she scampered up and she grabbed her sister by the hand and guided her down. Step here, step here, go here. And guided her all the way down to safety where we were able to continue with our day at the museum. It might have been about over by that point. As we were in Romans 7 last week, Paul described a situation, a tension in his own life in which I think he felt a lot like my daughter probably felt on that climbing structure. As Paul describes the endeavor to live a righteous life in keeping with the character of Jesus Christ, it's like I'm trying to climb up to the righteousness of God to get rid of sin and to pursue the character of God in Jesus Christ, but there's this tension in me because sin still lives in me, and although I know what I should do and what I want to do and what I'm aiming at, I can't seem to get there, and I'm frustrated, and I'm upset, and I feel hopeless. That was Romans 7, and at the end of Romans 7, he's like, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to set me free? And he says, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ who delivers us from this body of death. And here's, here's where Paul now is going to take us in Romans 8. As we look at how do we escape this frustration, this tension that we want to obey God, but it's hard to do. We know what we should do. We can hear God's instructions through the law, through his word. We know what his character is and what his righteousness looks like. We know what God wants, but we can't seem to get there. In Romans 8, Paul is going to show us how God can get us there. 
to a life of holiness and obedience. And the answer in Romans 8 is we need a guide. We need somebody to come in, take us by the hand, and say, here's how you're going to get there. Not back down to who you were before you knew Jesus Christ, but actually all the way up to the righteousness of God, to live a life of obedience and holiness. That guide that Paul's going to describe in Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say, look, what the law could not do, because you and I were weak, our flesh took over, what the law could not do, God did through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is that the law could offer us instructions for how to obey God, but it couldn't empower us to do it. Here's what he's going to say, is if you know Jesus Christ, you now have hope to obey where you were once hopeless. You now have the power to obey where you were once powerless. Here's the essence of Romans 8, 1 through 11. The gospel is good news because the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. This is really significant when I say from the inside out, right? Because the law tries to change you from the outside in. Don't do that. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't do this. Do this instead. The law issues instructions from the outside in. And the problem is that the inside of me is broken by sin. And I struggle with the flesh. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, though. If you know Jesus Christ, the Spirit now has moved into your heart and lives within you and begins this process of doing what the external law could not do, and that is to transform your heart and your thinking and your mind from the inside out, beginning with the attitude of your heart and moving outward to the actions of your hands. Right, so that the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. Understanding what the Holy Spirit does in the Christian life might be the central piece of knowing how to walk with Jesus day by day. That's why Romans 8, in many senses, is viewed as sort of this culmination, this capstone of the first half of the book of Romans. As Paul moves from how we have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, to now why we would want to obey, to now the struggle we face in obedience, and then in Romans 8, how we can find victory. And he's going to say, look, victory is not impossible through the power of the Spirit. That's where we're going, Romans 8. Before I dive in, though, into what the Spirit does from Romans 8, what I want to do for just a minute is talk about who the Spirit is. Who is the Holy Spirit? And there are two critical pieces of information that you must remember about the Holy Spirit in order to understand what he does in our lives. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. All right? The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. So, in John 16, when Jesus talks about and promises the coming of the Holy Spirit after his death and resurrection, notice how he talks about the Spirit. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Notice how he refers to the Spirit as he and not it. The Spirit is not a force. All right, I, I read a survey not long ago that said nearly half, 
46% of evangelical Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force and not a person with a mind and a will. All right, that's wrong. That's false theology. Those of us who grew up on Star Wars might really struggle with this. Because what is the force in Star Wars? Well, the force is this power that kind of moves through the universe and, and you can shape it to your own will, right? If you're, if you're trying to do something good, the force can help you do a good thing. If you're bad, if you're evil, like the emperor, Darth Vader, he can, he can help you do a bad thing, right? But the force doesn't actually have a mind or a will or a character of its own. It's just unbridled power that can be shaped to your ends. That's not how the scripture describes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has his own mind, his own will that is perfectly consistent with the will of God. Nobody shapes the Holy Spirit or directs the Holy Spirit to their own ends. The Holy Spirit directs and shapes us. So he is a he, a person, not a force. He is also fully God. He is the third person of the Trinity. Throughout the scripture, we see the Spirit referred to in terms of deity, He's not lesser than God. We, we worship a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter confronted Ananias about lying to the apostles, about how much money he gave to the church, notice what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Which, by the way, you can't lie to an impersonal force, right? You lied to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but notice, to God. To lie to the Spirit is to lie to God because the Spirit is fully God. Just as Jesus is fully God, just as the Father is fully God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For the Spirit searches all things. He searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. The spirit knows the thoughts of God, the depths of God, because he is God. This is why when Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples, he says to them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, the name singular, not the names, the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, three persons, one God. They're not three gods, but we worship a Trinitarian God. So when we baptize here, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, so this is really important. The Spirit is a person, the Spirit is God. Here's why this matters when we talk about how he changes us from the inside out, as we're gonna see in Romans 8, is because if you know Jesus Christ and you're saying, okay, how can I find victory over sin? Right? I struggle with maybe overspending or I struggle with substance abuse or I struggle with pornography or anger or, or whatever it may be. I'm struggling with these things. How do I find victory? Here's what Paul says. God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit lives in you. Once you begin to understand that, that changes how you think about the spiritual life and how you think about growth because now again the Spirit has the power and the will to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul's gonna walk this through for us in Romans 8 as we see what the Spirit can do in the lives of God's people. But I wanna ask you again, do you really believe that victory is possible over sin? 
or do you believe it's hopeless? Do you really believe that the besetting sins that you struggle with, God has the power to overcome in your life through the Spirit of God? Paul says it's true. Victory over sin is possible. Now we're going to see how this plays out in our lives, that it's a process most often and not an instantaneous event. But victory is possible because of what the Holy Spirit does. So follow with me, Romans 8, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin, In the flesh. All right, what a great verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? Very simply, condemnation is a negative verdict. So if you sit before a judge, the judge declares you either guilty or not guilty, or a jury declares you guilty or not guilty. If you're declared guilty, you are condemned. It's a negative judgment, a negative verdict. When Paul refers to condemnation, right here in verse 1. I think he's referring to two sorts of condemnation, two types of negative judgment that we see in the book of Romans. And, And what he says is that the Spirit frees us from both types of condemnation. All right, so the first type of condemnation is what he described in the first part of the book, that all of us, you, me, everybody in the world, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. What is the wages of sin? The payment for sin? It is death. Separation from God. Not only bodily, but spiritually. All of us deserve that condemnation. Eternal death in hell apart from God because of our sin. Now, the first part of the book laid out, God intervened in Jesus Christ to remove that condemnation. So Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. So here in verse 2, he says, hey, Jesus came as an offering for our sin. He took our sin away at the cross and in his resurrection. And so all who believe in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, everybody who trusts in Christ, that condemnation is removed. That's what we call justification. I no longer have to worry that my sin will send me to hell. Right, but there's another type of condemnation that Paul had described in chapter 7. That was the condemnation of trying now to obey through the law. Remember, and he says, every time I try to do what's right, I find sin right around the door trying to get me, right? Sin dwells within me. Sin is always at hand. It's always right there. No matter how hard I try, I can make the list of rules. I can tell myself I need to do better. I need to try harder. And yet I always fall short. And so I live with this sort of condemnation under the law, that although I have been declared righteous, I feel condemned because I am not becoming like Jesus Christ. Paul says the Spirit of God takes away that condemnation as well because the old law brought condemnation. But here's what he says. The old law, although it was good, it revealed the standards of God, it could not empower me to do the right thing. I could read the law, I could hear the instructions, but I couldn't do it. Now, he says, the law, though, it was weak because of me. What the law could not, could not do because of sin in me, 
God did by sending Jesus. What does Jesus do? Well, he lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. So he takes away the penalty of sin. But in his life, he does a couple of things. He demonstrates, first of all, that obedience is possible for a human being. That Jesus, as he obeys the Father, as he listens to the voice of the Spirit, he perfectly fulfills the demands of God's law. So I can look at Jesus also and say, okay, victory is possible. It is possible if I live according to the character of Jesus. But how do I do that? Well, when Jesus died and Jesus rose, he took away the penalty of sin. I, when I believe in Jesus, I am now what the Scripture calls regenerated, made new, washed clean, so that I can now be a vessel that is clean in which the Spirit can dwell. Which is why after Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, he says, I'm going to send the Spirit to all of those who have been cleansed by my death and resurrection to make you holy and righteous as you listen to the voice of the Spirit. But what Jesus does when it says he condemned sin in the flesh and he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, is he shows us that it's possible and then he empowers us for the task. My uh, son, for several years, practiced Taekwondo. In fact, he earned his black belt. And uh, while he was going to classes, of course, they, they practiced their, their forms and their kicks and their punches and breaking boards and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but there was, there was one activity that they'd sometimes do for fun if they had time at the end of the class. And it was sort of like a, a high jump competition. So the instructors would put sort of a soft padded bar on the board at a certain height, and they'd start pretty low. They'd line up all the kids, and they'd say, all right, jump over the bar. If you clear the bar, you're still in for round two. If you hit the bar, you're out, right? So first round, everybody clears the bar. It's real low. So they raise it a little bit. Everybody clears it. Somewhere, though, always around like iteration four or five, the bar would hit a height that nobody would clear at first. So the first four, five, six, seven kids would all run and hit that bar and knock it over and they would be out and, and the next person would be out. And you'd begin to sense the room starting to feel this hopelessness. Nobody's going to clear the bar. But invariably there would be a kid who would do it. About five or six kids in would run, would clear the bar. Everybody would cheer. And here's what I noticed. After the first kid did it, invariably two-thirds of the kids that came behind did it as well. They just needed to know that it could be done. They were living under this impression that this is an unreachable standard. It's a height that I can't get to. Once one person achieved it, the rest of them, it wasn't that their legs got taller or stronger. They realized it was possible, and they pursued the goal. This is what it means to be freed from condemnation. Paul says, the law always tells us, I can't obey. Right? Sin within me reacting to the law, rather, says, I can't obey. I can't do what's right. It's always at hand. I'm always condemned. And then I look at Jesus, and I go, wait, Jesus obeyed. And then here's the beautiful reality, as we're going to see in a moment. Jesus actually then empowers us to obey in his footsteps, right? So, so that that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The condemnation is lifted to where we go, okay, it is possible to clear this bar. Jesus had promised his disciples the Spirit, Paul will tell us now later in Romans 8, everybody who believes in Jesus possesses the Spirit because the Spirit came, we see in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Christ's ascension, to the church. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, 
And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, which is interesting because, you know, the Greek word for spirit actually means breath or wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. When they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The Spirit comes with power upon the believers in Jesus Christ and then empowers them from that moment on to obey. This is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, we'll see it in verse 11, anybody who doesn't have the Spirit doesn't know Jesus. If you know Jesus, the Spirit that raised him from the dead actually lives in you today. And he frees us from condemnation. And then Paul is going to go on and actually say, he also empowers us for transformation. It's as if somebody could actually give you the legs of that kid who can jump the highest, right? He could transfer his strength, his athleticism, his height, whatever, into you. That's what the Spirit has done. Follow with me in verses 4 through 10. He says, so that, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh, or, or the mindset of the flesh, is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So, so here's what he says. He goes, look, the, the outcome of the Spirit living in you because you believe in Jesus. The outcome of that, he says, is so that the, the, the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us, that we could not obey uh, the demands of God's law in our own strength by our flesh, but now the Spirit changes us from the inside out so that we can obey. Paul, by the way, is not saying, well, that means we have to do every command of the Old Testament law to the nation of Israel. He is here speaking of the law in its broadest sense, that the law was given to reveal the character of God, the holiness of God, and move me toward that goal, right? So you think about how Jesus defines the law, the, the highest commands in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commands hang on those two commands, right? Prior to knowing Jesus without the Spirit, we can't do that, right? Who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, nobody, especially if you don't know Jesus, who loves their neighbor really as themselves? That's a hard task. And apart from the intervention of God, I can't. Here's what Paul is saying, though. The Spirit comes in and he empowers us for transformation, to be able to fulfill God's desires for our lives. How? Well, he goes on. He goes, look. Here's how it happens. The mindset of the flesh, literally the, the thinking, this is this Greek word phronema, the, the mindset of the flesh leads to death, but the mindset of the spirit, the orientation, the worldview of the spirit leads to life and peace with God. All right, so you've got two pathways here. 
One is I soak my mind in what Paul calls the way of the flesh. This is a way that ends in death. It ends in hostility between me and God, hostility between me and other people. Or I soak my mind in the way of the Spirit, which leads to peace with God and obedience to God, right? So, so your mind is going to be transformed in one way or the other. What is the flesh? Remember last week? The flesh is this orientation, this disposition that comes from my sin nature that says, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And it's hostile to God. And often as we try to obey, the flesh gets in the way and we resist God and we move away from God. But he says, when you didn't know Jesus, you were, you were in the flesh. That's all the options you had was to obey the flesh. Even when you were doing good things, they were not meritorious before God and they were usually rooted somewhere in your selfish desires. But he says, now as a believer in Jesus, you've got another option that the spirit moves in and the spirit can empower you to obey where the flesh could not, where the law had failed. So now he says, which pathway on a day-to-day basis will you pursue? How, how do we take on the mindset of the Spirit? How does this work in our lives? If it's not a list of rules and a list of regulations, how do we do this? How are we transformed from the mindset of the flesh to the mindset of the Spirit? I, I want to walk that through for just a minute with you. If you, if you remember uh, Galatians chapter 5, you're probably familiar with this passage. Galatians 5 says that the outcome of walking by the Spirit is what? Fruit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. So he says, look, if you walk by the Spirit, this is the fruit of your life. Now I want you to notice something about this. All of these fruit are attitudes. They're dispositions. They're not actions, right? Notice he doesn't say, hey, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, is giving more money to the church. The fruit of the Spirit is reading your Bible 30 minutes a day. The fruit of the Spirit is, is some, some act of obedience. It's a disposition. It's a transformation that comes from the inside out. The idea is the Spirit begins to change me from the inside out. Now, how does that happen? Well, as I set my mind, I set my heart on the things of God's Word, on the reality of who he is. How do I do that? Well, let me just give you one illustration using this this kind of fruit analogy from Psalm chapter one of how this works. Notice what Psalm one says. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So here's what he says. Look, the person who meditates on God's law, what is that? I chew on it. I think about it. I absorb it into my mind, absorb it into my heart. He goes, that person will bear fruit. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that bears fruit. What is the fruit as we see in Galatians 5? It is attitudes and mindsets and a heart change that then leads to the transformation of my actions. But think about it this way. Uh, If you think about a fruit tree, apple tree, orange tree, banana tree, whatever, uh, how do they bear fruit? What do they do? Well, if you walk outside and you look at a fruit tree, you're never gonna see that tree just standing there being like, fruit, come on, fruit, 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 right? You've never seen that. 
they're not like trying hard. They're not like, ah, right? They don't, they don't like reach over to the other branch and try to pluck fruit up, right? Pick up their bark, whatever. What do they do? They just remain rooted next to the water. And that water comes into the tree and up through its veins or whatever you call them when it's a tree, right? And it moves through that tree and it provides nourishment to the whole tree, which leads to fruit. The fruit is a natural result of being planted in the right place by healthy water. Here's what I think Paul would say is that walking by the Spirit is a matter of planning yourself day by day in the right place. So I read the Word of God not because that's some meritorious act that I check off my list, but as I read and meditate on God's Word, it's that my mind and my heart is transformed as the Spirit uses God's Word to change my attitudes and my outlook. As I pray, it's not only that I pray so God will give me certain things, but as I pray, the Spirit is shaping and speaking to me and through me to God and reshaping my mindset and my heart from the way of the flesh to the way of the Spirit. As I gather with the community of faith and we sing and and we engage with one another and I go to a Bible study throughout the week where I hear from God's word and other spirit-indwelt people encourage and build me up, the spirit uses you and me to shape one another into the image of Jesus Christ so that these practices and habits of the spiritual life Those are not works that somehow earn us God's favor, but what they are is they are habits that allow us increasingly to take on the mindset of the Spirit, right? And so all too often we start with the external, right? If I'm struggling with sin, I need to get immediately like accountability software or I need to to make a list of rules or throw away the alcohol or whatever it may be. All of those are great things. However, what Paul says is where this transformation leads to victory is when it begins from the inside out, when moment by moment I am meditating on God's word, crying out to him for the Spirit's power, spending my time with men and women who are encouraging me and exhorting me in the faith through the power of the Spirit. I plant myself where the Spirit can do his work, and then the Spirit empowers me for transformation, that what the law could not do, the Spirit of God can do. You now have a whole new way of life, a whole new way of living, accessible to you through the power of the Spirit, where before there was only frustration. Several years ago, 10 years ago, uh, my father-in-law gifted it to me, a large sort of swing set jungle gym for our kids. Uh, and when I say he gifted me a jungle gym or swing set, what I really mean is he gifted me two large boxes filled with pieces with which I could assemble this jungle gym. Tons of, of like lumber and all of these fasteners and all of this. So, so I, I got it all out. I laid it all out. And, and then I thought, I need help with this. So I called a friend. My friend came over to help me. And I said, all right, we're going to put this together. So I hand him a screwdriver. I have a screwdriver. Right? We begin to kind of turn these fasteners. And it's in the, it's in the Texas sun, kind of early summer. And so it's hot and we're sweating and it's hard work. And this is going on for, a, you know, an hour or so. And we haven't gotten much done. And my friend at one point, he goes, hey, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, do you have a power drill or anything like that that would, uh, that would make this a lot faster? And, and I don't know why at that moment I hadn't, like, put a lot of things together at this point in my life. 
I said, no, I don't think I have anything like that. We're just going to have to do it. He's like, okay, right? So we, so we work for a couple more hours, and we barely get anything done. And finally, my friend's like, hey, I got to go home. And he's leaving. I'm like, so when are you coming back? He's like, never, right? And he runs to his car, and he's gone. So I'm out there by myself. I get a little bit more done. And then as I'm sitting in my house that night, uh, all of a sudden, it clicks in my mind. This is true. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second. I do have a power drill. In fact, I have two in my garage. I'm not kidding at all. And I thought, man, we just invested all of this effort in a task that seemed impossible when I actually had the power at my disposal to do it much better, much faster, much more efficiently. Once I plugged it in and used that power drill, the task went so much better because I had the power to accomplish it. Paul describes the Christian life apart from the Spirit, just with like lists of rules and the law and obligations. He describes it as like you're trying to put that thing together, but you got no power. You know what you need to do, but it feels impossible. And then all of a sudden he goes, okay, plant yourself where the Spirit can transform you and see what happens. See how he begins to reshape your mind and your heart and your attitudes and eventually your actions. Now, for most of us, this is not an instantaneous process. If you say there's some besetting sin in my life, I want it gone tomorrow. And I've known people for whom that's been their experience. That's not most people. For most people, this is a lifelong process of walking with God and the Spirit transforming us and changing us until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. So that the Spirit, what he does, he removes the condemnation and reminds us that victory is possible. We're no longer condemned by our inability to obey. He empowers us for transformation with a view to our ultimate resurrection because that's what he promises eventually is bodily resurrection and we will be glorified in the presence of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. So then he says, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Man, what a powerful statement, right? The very Spirit of God that raised Jesus' dead body lives in you, lives in me. And if that's true, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the Spirit dwells in you right now to help you walk with God, to empower you to obey. That same Spirit, one day, when you are lying in the grave and Jesus returns, will raise you from the dead. So what he's getting at is this resurrection life lives in you today and empowers you to obey. But one day we look ahead and there is this promise of eternal life. And so as we're walking with the Lord day by day by day, we always keep that hope fixed in our view. Because not only are we empowered to obey, but that motivates us to obey as we know the certainty of God's promises and the certainty of resurrection. Think about it this way. Uh, Some of you in this room, you are single. And if you're single, maybe you hope one day to get married. Those of you who are married, uh, you were once single and can remember hoping to get married. Now, here's what I want want you to imagine. Uh, Imagine that tonight you fall asleep and God gives you a vision of your future spouse and your future spouse is everything you've dreamed of and more, right? They're, they're godly, they're kind, they're, they're funny, they're good looking, like they're, they're everything you've dreamed of and more. Now, 
you receive this message or vision, let's just say, and you know that's going to happen. God says, this is your future. It's, it's certain. It's secure. Now, knowing that, knowing that future reality, is that going to come back where you go, you know what, uh, now that I know that that's certain, I'm just going to kind of, you know, uh, stop caring about myself. I'm going to kind of become a mean, introverted, uh, angry person and do whatever I want. I don't think you will. I actually think in light of knowing the glorious future that waits for you, you are going to say in the present, I want to live in a way that when I get to that future, I will be a partner worthy of that person. I will live in such a way that when I get to that place, I can love that person as I meant to love that person. I can be the person that I ought to be for that person. The certainty doesn't produce complacency, but the certainty motivates you to transformation. This is why Paul mentions the resurrection here, and later on in Romans 8, he's going he's gonna to reassure us and say, you need to know, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is secure. Your resurrection one day is certain. That does not lead us to complacency, but it motivates us to transformation. As we say, what I'm created for is to f- reflect Jesus Christ and his character. So that as Paul would say in another context, what I long for one day is to be presented before him, holy and blameless, without reproach, to say, God, I want to worship you. That's what I've been longing for, to worship in your presence. And my character has been shaped and transformed over the decades and years so that I now am ready to stand in your presence. Our salvation is secure because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but now the Spirit works to transform us in light of our future victory. That's how the Holy Spirit operates in the life of a Christian. We're going to delve into this more uh, in the latter part of Romans chapter 8, but, but this morning, let me just offer a couple of thoughts by way of application. First of all, as we read this passage, I think Paul would say to us, believe that victory is possible. Victory over sin is not impossible for those who walk with the Spirit. I am not saying that there will be some moment in your life where you suddenly go, okay, I'm perfect. The sin nature never troubles me. As I said, this is an ongoing process that won't be completed until we meet Jesus face to face. But transformation and growth and victory is possible. If you're stuck in some kind of sin and you're hopeless, I hope you hear from Romans 8. You can have hope of transformation. Victory is possible. And so what we want to do now is cultivate the mindset of the Spirit. Begin by learning to plant yourself in the Word of God, amongst the people of God, as we talk to God and obey God and engage with God day after day. So invest your time in knowing Him. Not to check it off a list, but because that's the context in which the Spirit can transform us until the day We see Jesus face to face. Is your mind and heart being remade into the image of Jesus Christ as you plant yourself where the Spirit can work? Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. We do ask that you would transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit who can work from the inside out in our lives in a way that the law never could. We're so thankful, Lord. We pray that you would transform us increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen.